This morning, we're looking uh, at the prophecy that is referenced uh, later in Acts 2. Uh, It is the prophecy from Joel uh, about what happens when God will pour his spirit out among his people. And we read in Joel 2, verses 28 to 30, this. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great day, great and dreadful day of the Lord And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Life is often full of interruptions. Uh, When I was younger, we planned for five or six years straight to celebrate my birthday with a pool party. I might have mentioned this before. My friends were going to bring their water guns. Uh, Pizza was going to be delivered straight to the pool, which is very uh, fancy for being in elementary school. Uh, It seemed like the height of elementary school uh, sophistication. The pizza would come to you, not your house. It was amazing. But every year, storms arrived instead, and it canceled my birthday before it began. But the day wasn't really ruined. We played video games or went to Blockbuster when Blockbuster was still a thing. Uh, Most interruptions, though, follow a similar pattern. Our car breaks down on the way to see family, so we spend the afternoon waiting for the tow truck instead of eating dinner. Uh, An old friend calls, so we catch up instead of doing laundry. These disruptions that we experience in our life, they shift our plans for a moment, but things usually get back to normal. But as the disciples discovered at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit doesn't just interrupt our lives, but transforms our hearts, which changes the direction of our entire life. Commanded by Jesus to remain in Jerusalem, the disciples found themselves in the middle of preparations for the Jewish festival of Shavuot. Now, this celebration happened 50 days after God's deliverance of his people at Passover. So uh, Pentecost, right? Five, uh, 50 days after uh, Passover. And it marked the Lord's presentation of the Torah or the law uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, this was a momentous uh, occasion in the history of Israel's uh, history. It was something that they remembered Uh, And despite the difficulty of keeping every section of the law that the Lord had given, uh, they still understood that the law had been, uh, was a gift, a reminder of God's grace that deserved to be celebrated. Like Passover, this festival doubled as a pilgrimage uh, for Jewish families across the Roman Empire. There were, there was no more appropriate place to celebrate God's provision of the law than the temple. So faithful Jews flooded into the city to worship, but also enjoy a great feast. Better yet, this festival happened at the beginning of summertime. So very similar uh, to, you know, like our current situation today. 
Uh, so people uh, brought the first fruits of the harvest uh, to enjoy together. It was a wonderful time. Everything was bright. Uh, it was a good time to celebrate. School and work were canceled, and everyone praised the goodness of their God. But while the city waited for the celebration to begin, the disciples were waiting for something else. Like they'd been doing uh, since Jesus ascended into heaven, a small group of believers woke every morning, early morning, to pray and waiting for the Spirit to arrive like Jesus had promised. And then one day, without warning, it did appear, and it disturbed the entire town. The Greek words used to describe the Spirit's arrival emphasize the supernatural. The word for heavenly sound also describes the roar Uh, of the ocean during a storm. The words for rushing wind are described as mighty and violent, indicating the force of a whirlwind or tornado, not wind that you would typically experience in the middle of Jerusalem during a festival. Tongues of fire reflect the prophet Ezekiel's vision of God's presence, uh, where we learn that, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the middle of the fire, in the midst of the fire, gleaming metal. The Spirit's entrance caused such a commotion in town that a multitude came together bewildered. Now, the mainly Jewish crowd likely recognized the Spirit's appearance echoed many descriptions of the Lord's presence in their own history, but they would have remembered one prophecy from Joel in particular. The second chapter of Joel begins with the description of something that we call the day of the Lord, which is a moment that Yahweh interrupts the status quo of our broken world, confronting injustice, judging the wicked, and defeating evil once and for all. Now, depending on your personal moral position, the sovereign Lord coming to judge all creation is either very good or very bad news. Right? It brings horror and relief in equal measure depending on how you think about yourself. If you are one of the wicked, this is not a good day. It's a very bad day, actually. You'll find the proclamation in Isaiah 13 about the day of the Lord terrifying. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy sinners within it. The rising sun will be darkened, the stars Will, uh, will diminish their light. The moon will not uh, give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Again, if you're wicked, the day of the Lord is fairly terrifying. But if you consider yourself one of the innocents who has been wronged by the wicked, those who have been crushed by injustice, who have labored without hope, Under oppression, those who have lost their dreams, who have lost hope, the day of the Lord brought immense comfort. Finally, the burden that you carried for so long will be taken from you. The day of the Lord, uh, the day the Lord enters this world means vindication and rescue. It means renewal and redemption. Just like with his enslaved children in Egypt, the day of the Lord proves that Yahweh has not forgotten the plight of his people, and that he is coming to usher in uh, them into a new era of freedom and joy. Now, for the people of Israel, hearing these warnings about the day of the Lord, uh, they usually responded with joy. 
because they typically believed that they were about other people or other nations. Finally, Yahweh is going to come and punish those terrible neighbors of ours. They worship all sorts of idols. They marry who knows how many wives. They oppress the innocent. They do all sorts of wicked things. They've been messing with us for far too long, but now God's going to put them in their place. There's a problem, though, because their assumptions about the direction of God's wrath revealed their own arrogance and their own lack of understanding. These warnings about the day of the Lord applied as much and usually more to the rebellious children of God who should have known better but still willfully organized their own lives and society in ways that ran directly against God's commands. In response to their obliviousness, the prophet Amos uh, cautions. He says, why do you long for the day of the Lord? Why do you want this day to come? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and uh, thought he was safe and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. That's both kind of funny and terrifying. The people of Israel assumed that they were safe from judgment, but from God's perspective, all of humanity needed to be freed from their sin. They needed to be held account for their sin. Had the people of Israel recognized or realized the danger in which they stood, they would have recognized that when Joel delivered this prophecy, they were already experiencing a withdrawal withdrawal of God's mercy in the form of a prolonged famine. Now, before their troubles had begun, life had been going extremely well for the people of Israel. Their farms had been bountiful, giving them good things to eat and trade. Life was very good. But then a curse interrupted their supposed flourishing, and it settled over the land itself. Dry heat replaced abundant rain. Dead grass replaced flowers. Trees withered. Fruit vanished. Crops faded to dust. Assuming God would shower them with blessing because they were his children, they failed to take responsibility for their own sins. And then they wondered why something so terrible had visited their nation. In their eyes, what made their lives good wasn't their relationship with Yahweh, but the blessings themselves. If their land could be restored or they had a solid crop or revived economy, if they could have renewed trade, if their neighbors could settle down and not threaten to invade all the time, then they could again be happy and content. So when Joel immediately prophesies after talking about the day of the Lord, about a harvest that will make up for every year they lost a famine, the people are overjoyed. But the message Joel brings to the people is not concerned with what God can give them, but who they will become when the Spirit of God settles not on their land, not on their nation, but in their hearts. The people of Israel at that time wanted full tables and comfortable homes and secure futures. They wanted the blessings of the kingdom, but they were fairly indifferent toward the king. But God interrupts their routines to declare that he wants to give them and us so much more. Our God wants to give his children, both the Israelites 
back then and the early church at Pentecost and us today, his own overwhelming presence. So they might be transformed. See, the people wanted blessings, but he wants them to experience life like they'd never known it before. They wanted to exist in comfort and peace, but the Lord wanted them to flourish to align their hearts with his so they might step into the world as living embodiments of his love. Despite declaring that the day of the Lord was indeed coming, Yahweh also promises that one day he will pour his spirit upon humanity so completely the hearts and minds of his children would be completely and comprehensively changed. When this happens, they won't just receive blessings from their gracious God. They would become blessings themselves, learning how to bless their broken world. Of course, the Israelites didn't really understand the full scope of this prophecy at that time. Jesus wouldn't be around uh, to explain what this would mean for God's people for several hundred years. But even then, the Israelites recognized that the pouring of God's spirit would change them in three unexpected ways. First is this. The spirit of God being poured into our hearts, remaking us from the inside out, is inexhaustible. The Hebrew uh, verb used for pour has several different layers, but the most crucial is that it denotes not just a one-time exchange, but an ongoing action. So when God pours his spirit on us, we don't get a single dose of God's goodness, and then it wears off eventually, but we are continually refilled and renewed with the blessings of his presence. Even when we feel empty, the spirit always keeps our connection with God open. Another thing to notice about the word poor is the manner of this connection itself. The connection the Spirit establishes between God and his children is not a slow drip. It is not like a weak Wi-Fi signal. It is a faucet turned full blast. You turn on both the hot and the cold, everything coming out at once. When the Spirit of the Lord is poured upon us, it is more like a waterfall than a bucket. A waterfall that keeps coming, keeps pouring. Our Lord doesn't pour his spirit with measured discretion, but great abundance. If you think about the parable of the sower, right? How does he uh, sow? If you were a farmer and you read the parable of the sower, you would think that is a very bad sower because he's just throwing the seeds everywhere, right? He's not even throwing them in the right ground. He's just throwing them everywhere. But that is how God pours his blessings into his children. It is overwhelming. It is abundant. John Calvin uh, says it like this. He says, however many blessings we expect from God, his infinite liberality will always exceed all our wishes and our thoughts. We see this promise come true with the first Disciples in the arrival of the Spirit on Pentecost. Notice what happens at Pentecost. They are overwhelmed. It doesn't just overwhelm the small group of believers in that moment, but it supernaturally, the Spirit supernaturally infuses the work of the early church. 
The faithful of that time experienced God's presence in a new way that never faded and never failed to provide precisely what they needed when they needed it. That same promise still extends to us today. The Spirit is still ready to pour the love of God into each of us. Second, we will be given prophecies and dreams and visions of his kingdom. Again, this happens uh, at Pentecost. It's important here, however, to understand what these, uh, these gifts mean and what they don't mean, these prophecies and dreams and visions. And this promise doesn't mean we're going to suddenly have amazing dreams from the Lord every night or that every dream we do have uh, when we fall asleep is from God. Um, at least I don't, I'm fairly sure that doesn't work like that. Otherwise, you know, there's a clown that I'd like to talk to God about. Uh, you know, uh, it also doesn't guarantee that every dream we have for our own lives will come true either. But this promise does mean that our hearts and minds will gradually start to echo the heart and mind of God, that we will adopt the dreams and visions and prophecies that God has for us, which are so much better than our own dreams. We will start to pay attention to everything that God is worried most about. His preoccupations will become our preoccupations. Our vision for our own life and this whole world will begin to be less our own and more like his. And drawing closer to Jesus uh, through the spirit, we will start to reflect his holy nature. We will start to become more like Jesus. What he thinks about, we'll start to think about. We look around at the world and we're not going to say, uh, I think the world should be like this just because I think it should be like this. We're going to look around the world and go, God has a plan here. And it's beautiful and more amazing than anything I can come up with. Preacher R.A. Torrey says it like this. He says, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a power, we will want to know how to get hold of it and use it. But if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, we, want, we will want to know how he can get a hold of me and use me. We adopt the dreams and the visions and the prophecies of our God and his kingdom. Finally, the spirit of God is designed not only to pour onto or into us, but through us into the broken world in which we live. When God's spirit moves into his children, when he moves into you and me, what happens to us is not only for our own benefit. That is not how God works. At Pentecost, the Spirit of the Lord descends upon the church for the purpose of fulfilling God's redemptive mission for this world. And that mission happens through regular people who have been drenched in the gracious love of God as we know it in Jesus. If you read the rest of Acts, and I'd encourage you to read the rest of Acts, look for the phrase filled with the Spirit. Because that's like a little red light. It's a signal. It says something amazing is about to happen because the Spirit has filled these people, these early believers. The whole history of the Christian movement reflects the reality that when the Spirit of God is poured into believers, things happen as if Jesus were there doing it himself. Demons run. 
The lost are found, the blind see, the sinful repent, the proud are shamed, the sick are healed, the broken are made whole. Truth is proclaimed with boldness and gentleness. Lives are changed. When the Spirit is poured into a believer, we become a little more like Jesus. As we grow more like him, the Spirit of God uses our life to do the things that our Lord has always been about. About saving his people and bringing them back into a relationship with him. About building the new kingdom of God. About restructuring our hearts and our entire world according to what God thinks best. Now, at this point... We've read these amazing promises, and I think our very human interact response is to say, maybe this isn't meant for me. We might say, that's neat, but I'm not ready to do those kinds of things. I don't know enough scripture or theology or, you know, I don't know if about know about, enough about church ministry to make a difference. Maybe we say, with all that I've been through in my life, I'm not sure my heart will ever really reflect the love and joy of Jesus Like that again, I've just been too beaten down. Maybe we say, I've been in a valley for too long. I'm not sure that I'll ever have dreams or visions like this again. But church, if you know Jesus at all, then the Spirit will pour onto and into and through you too. That is the promise that we have at Pentecost. The Spirit of God will pour into us always. So let us rejoice this morning that our God pours not just his blessing, but his presence into this world, into us. That is the promise we have to hold on to at Pentecost. Hallelujah. Amen.